0: Welcome to Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today is the second show in our series on unpacking sovereignty. We will continue to talk with our special guests, Professor Callaway and Prince, uh, and I will uh, introduce each of them. Uh, Professor uh, Colin Calloway is from Dartmouth uh, and his his latest book is called The Indian World of George Washington. And that's a particular interest for me and that's why I've invited him to be on the show. And uh, our other guest is Professor Harold Prince from Kansas State University, Ametrius, uh, And uh, he's worked many years with the Wabanaki Communities of Maine. And uh, that's why he is on the show as well. So I would like to uh, begin by uh, asking Professor uh, Colin uh, uh, Colin Colloway to talk about uh, Washington and uh, his obsession with, uh, with land, George Washington and his obsession with land.
1: Thank you, Donna. Thanks for having us back. Um, And George Washington, I think, kind of gets to the heart of a lot of important issues that are central to the history of this country. And of course, one of those is that this is a nation built on Indian land. And Washington understood that. He didn't say that in as many words, but he understood that. And from... His teenage years till his, virtually his last breath, Washington was concerned with, if not obsessed with land, Western land, he very rarely called it Indian land, but that's what it was. He saw it as the, the key to his own fortune and status. He saw it as the key to the future and prosperity of his own colony and then state, Virginia, and as president, he saw it as essential to the growth and the survival of the nation that he helped to create. Washington understood that if the United States won independence, but was not able to secure the territory beyond the Appalachian Mountains, it would be stifled. It was fundamental to the nation's future that that land be become American real estate. But all of us, this begs a larger question, and that is, whose land? Is it in the sense of who controls the the dispossession and the distribution of that land? From first contacts, Europeans had recognized, European nations had recognized that indigenous peoples occupied the land, but they didn't regard that or accord native peoples the right of property. They said this is a, they have a right to the soil, it's a right of occupancy. So Native people have some rights to the land, but Europeans, when they acquire that land, own it as property, which Native people don't. This is rooted in what's called the doctrine of discovery, whereby Europeans can claim Indigenous lands and pass them back and forward. And it works its way through into um, the United States through the Supreme Court decision, United States versus McIntosh in in the 1820s. And basically it says that Indian peoples occupy the land, but they have a right of occupancy. So they can't buy and sell the land like everybody else. It's almost as if they're tenants on the land. And Europeans, invented the rules of this game, played this game, and Americans inherited these claims and these these rules. But when the United States acquires from Great Britain all the land from the Appalachians to the Mississippi, south of the Great Lakes, north of Florida, how is it going to then transfer those paper land claims into Um, actual ownership, actual property. Who's going to do that? Will the individual states who won their independence oversee and control that? Or will it be the federal government that does it? And a federal government, of course, at the start, has no money. It's bankrupt at the end of a long war. Basically, all it has is this land, which it would call public land, even though it's still occupied and controlled by Indian peoples, Indian nations. But there's a tussle between the federal government and its president, George Washington, and many of the individual states who feel that they have the right of access to control of and sale of lands that belong to the Indian peoples within their borders. So very often I think in looking back at this period, we think that the 13 states win their independence and then roll up their sleeves and get on with the business of being the United States. Whereas in fact, many of the states regarded themselves as these United States, right? They were separate and they weren't all sure that they wanted to belong to a single entity, they weren't at all sure that they wanted to bequeath their powers and authority and sovereignty to the federal government. So this was a this was a tussle, and it acquisition of this land has dominated Washington's life. Working out how that land is going to be um, acquired from Indian people and then distributed to American citizens. Um, dominates certainly the first um, first term of his presidency and beyond.
0: So um, you were uh, talking about um, the fact that uh, Washington really wanted these lands, and then he, uh, he, but he also had to deal with the, the tribes who were possessing that land, and he had to get that land, uh, he had to get the title for that land. So what was so important about how they got the land? Why was that an important piece?
1: Yeah. in the, And what the United States and Washington do is to follow in the footsteps of the British and the French and other European powers in dealing with Native peoples. If if Native peoples have land, even if it's only rights of occupancy, and Europeans want that land, Europeans want their acquisition of that land to seem legitimate. Not so much, I'd argue, to Native people, but to rival European powers who have a claim to that land. And so by making treaties with Indian people by which you bought the land, you paid a fair price, and that's heavily in quotation marks, paid a fair price for that land. That was a way of saying, we have this land and we've acquired it legitimately. We haven't just gone in and stolen the land. And the United States follows in that foot in those footsteps, making treaties with Indian nations was seen as the fair and just way of acquiring land. And it also, of course establishes title. You have a document that shows that this land was transferred by the original owners to the new owners. And so when the United, when Washington becomes president, when the United States is, is created and they say, we have to have this land, right? there's a number of ways of doing it. One is you can just take it by conquest, right? send in the troops, defeat the Indians, take the land. Well, trouble with that is it's very expensive and it's very risky, right? especially for a young nation like the United States, whose military power doesn't amount to very much. It's much more uh, acceptable, much safer, and actually much cheaper to negotiate with Indian people for the land and purchase the land. And so that's the preferred way of, of, of proceeding. and. So that involves establishing treaties. And for our purposes, an interesting dimension to that is that treaties by definition are agreements between equals. And in an international sense, treaties are agreements between nations. And when the United States starts out, that's how the United States views them also. The constitution says, that treaties with um, foreign nations will be ratified by a two-third vote of the Senate. George Washington sends the Senate a message and says, and that applies, that has to apply to Indian treaties as well. So the very fact that the United States follows in British footsteps and. Proceeds by making treaties with Indian people, even though those, even though those treaties are designed as instruments of dispossession to get the land, they nonetheless represent an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of the Indian nations with which the United States is dealing.
2: Carol, you had something. Yeah, the um, uh, I totally agree with uh, Colin. Obviously. Um, The the instruments, the legal instruments, by means of which these um, rights to negotiate, which was in dispute whether it was a prerogative of the federal government, as per the uh, Non-Intercourse Act of 1790, where it asserted that right, that it's only the prerogative of the federal government uh, to make treaties with uh, indigenous nations and not of private individuals or even states, Uh, The instrument that was um, used was so-called the right of preemption and the preemptive right, which is not well understood, but it's an essence whereby one polity or one uh, political entity that can be the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, for example, or it can be New York State, that they claim that they have a preemptive right to make treaties with indigenous nations. And they take that right from the previous claimant of that right, which was the British Crown in this particular case. So the British Crown had acknowledged uh, in well before the American Revolutionary War, concept of Indian title or Aboriginal title. And that was in essence to protect under the crown, uh, the rights of indigenous nations uh, to hold their own land, albeit under the overall overarching mantle of the British crown. In other words, the British crown said, we will protect the colonists, but we will also, within our claimed area, protect the rights of indigenous peoples. So that concept of Aboriginal title or Indian title is very complicated, but that precedes the American Revolution by about 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, as it was formulated. And the question was then, if Native peoples have a recognized Aboriginal title, which means they have ownership to the land, albeit within the claimed territory of the British crown. When the revolution happened, the question was what would happen with that Aboriginal title? Would it come under the wings of the federal government or would it come under the wings of the individual states? And that was the preemptive right. That was the right, the, the, the prerogative by that entity to make treaties with indigenous nations. It's a complicated notion, but it's very important because Massachusetts in particular, with respect to Maine, uh, had exercised (laughs) jurisdiction, claimed jurisdiction, uh, not only toward the Kennebec, which was the original boundary of the province of Maine, but then all the way to the Penobscot, then all the way to St. Croix. So there's an expansion by Massachusetts eastward in terms of claiming uh, political dominion over Wabanaki territories, or a good chunk of it, a good chunk of it, and so by claiming in 1780, uh, basically in 1776, that it had always had the right to make treaties with indigenous peoples, which was contested by the crown through their royal governors. So you get a contestation of power in Boston between the Republican-oriented uh, um, former Puritans. Uh, who were not monarchists as opposed to the uh, crown appointed officials representing the uh, British monarchy in the colonies. And that was all the time a contestation between two power centers, Boston on the one hand and London on the other, and who would get to control the periphery outside of Boston when you get to the territories of Maine, for example. And... um, that was never really resolved. That that was there from the very foundation of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was this resistance on the part of the pilgrims slash Puritans to acknowledge uh, British uh, power, which then throughout uh, much of the 1700s was not a big issue because the king of England, uh, King George, wasn't even resident in England. And I believe he didn't even speak English. He spoke German. So uh, it was an, a monarchy in name to a large degree, um, but uh, the exercise of power was you know, not as, as strong as it later became under George III. That, of course, led, led to the revolution. Uh, the British are thrown out of the 13 colonies. They hold power in what is now called Canada, Eastern Canada in particular. Um, and then the question is about what to do with these ind- indigenous peoples and who has the right to now make treaties, purchase land, and not to make it a free-for-all. Um, the, the state of Massachusetts claimed we can make the treaties with the Brunscott. Then when the federal government comes in in 1790 uh, with a Non-Intercourse Act under uh, the Secretary of War, uh, Henry Knox, and George uh, Washington as the president, uh, Massachusetts did not surrender that right, and it was not contested because Henry Knox, who on the one hand became a protector, if you will, of Indian rights vis-a-vis Georgia, uh, he uh, had self-interest in Maine with respect to not contesting that power of Massachusetts where he had his buddies they do his own bidding to extend his uh, land holdings in Maine. It's a very complicated story, but it centers on the concept of A, Aboriginal Aboriginal title or Indian title, and B, the right of preemption.
1: And just to uh, echo that, this preemptive right, which is so important to the to the federal government, of course, um, results in what's, what scholars call, I suppose, diminished sovereignty, right? because it basically means that um, in the way the rules of the game have been constructed by the Europeans and then the Americans, Indian people have the right to sell their land, but they can't sell their land to just anybody, right? You couldn't, the United States could not tolerate, for instance, Shawnee selling a chunk of uh, Ohio to Canada or Germany, right? And it also raises the question of, well, can they sell them to individual citizens? That's one of the uh, cases that, that, that comes to be tested. Um, it has to be, you know, the federal government has to to control this. And it gets to a larger issue of not only the buying and selling of land, but the role of the federal government in shaping and directing westward expansion. Contrary to our rather romantic and um, congenial view of American history that has pioneer families just sort of almost organically moving west and, and converting wilderness into family farms. Um, the federal government plays a major role in this, in not only acquiring the land, but also de- determining uh, where the thrust of, of settlement goes and working hand in glove with land companies to whom in some ways it outsources the business of um, dividing up the land, distributing the land, overseeing and organizing settlements so that you have, uh, especially north of the Ohio River, townships uh, and um, fully um, surveyed land. I mean, you fly across the United States and you look down from the plane and and so often, even if you're flying across Kansas, uh, you see these sections, square sections, quarter sections, etc., etc., where following the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, this has kind of been the model for American expansion, right? I often say to my students, if you fly across, fly over Britain and look down at the field system, you don't see anything orderly. It looks like everyone was drunk uh, when they set that up. This is a... Um, This is an organized and systematic expansion. It's basically a blueprint for expansion. Um, It's not only about getting the land and acquiring the land, but how that land will then be used to create towns and states and build the United States.
0: So it's like a nation-building sort of plan. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, that means... That Indian people and Indian nations who are on the land are in the way. Right? Because getting back to your question about Washington, Washington's not only into land, he's into property. Right? And under thinking and treating land as property, which is fundamental, of course, to uh, the United States and American values to the point where I suppose it's ingrained in our society. Um, it's very different for how indigenous peoples viewed the land. And by indigenous peoples, I don't just mean uh, Native Americans. I'm thinking of you know peoples on the borderlands of, of Britain, Highland Scots, etc. Prior to the commodification, the capitalization of homelands, into, um, into properties that must turn a profit, right? um, and so there's a there's a um, a conflict and a, and a shift of values taking place throughout all of this, as well as <coughs> a a transfer of ownership of land.
2: Yeah, if I make a, a, a quick comment um, on that. Um, in the United States, um, you often have when I speak to colleagues here, uh, there's a notion about a um, uh, uh, about the European or the white man uh, and coming here and having certain kind of ideas that are being imposed for um, whatever kind of reason. And the reality of course, is when you go to Europe, is that that process, that state formation process, not even nation formation process, it's really a state formation process whereby a kind of a rational uh, commodification of land uh, and other resources uh, for marketing purposes, for, for capital production. So you got the capitalist mode of production that comes into play in Europe, also infringes repeatedly on communal lands held by... Peasant communities, uh, for example, even in my own country, which is sometimes uh, classified as the birthing place of modern capitalism. Uh, but in the eastern parts of where I come from, until the 1860s, 1870s, about the same time of just preceding the Dawes Act with the Great Plains, there was dispossession going on of communal land holding common by the freeholders of, for example, uh, forest or moor or uh, Raid fields where there were pe- people were hunting or fishing or collecting firewood uh, where they held the sheep. In uh, Scotland, of course, is Colin, where Colin comes from, uh, was a similar kind of story of communal land holdings that then become privatized. And as a result of the privatization, uh, you get actually some of these large uh, landed estates also in the Netherlands where you have baronets and barons. We don't have many, but we do have them or people who acquire baronet rights uh, of estate holders and build their big mansions in there, but often they are built on land that was communal uh, property held by freeholding farmers. So that notion uh, that comes out of Europe is not, not racially based as a lot of people think in terms of reducing Europeans to whites. What it is, is capitalist based in the sense of commodifying land into real estate. And then you have a different commodity and you get that township model that Colin was referring to, six miles by six miles, subdivided in lots of 500 acres or subdivided in lots of 150 acres, and then bring that to market and then put a land value in it. Uh, then with that land value, you say this is the worth of that land in terms of uh, as a commodity. Then you can go to a bank you get a loan and use that land that you are purchasing as a collateral in the case you don't can't pay back uh, the loan. And so this is the complex between banking, in this case, the banking in Amsterdam and London in particular, but also in Paris. Those three uh, capital cities, Amsterdam, London and Paris, with their big banks and the surplus capital that is invested in these banks, that seeks an outlet into land speculation in North America so you get here not on the one hand the land speculators often you know big powerful people like George Washington himself but also Henry Knox uh, with respect to Maine and William Deer and William Bingham there's a lot of these big names who are often in the Senate or in government itself they need a capital infusion in order to uh, make the conquest of that land in a legal way possible but get financing from these banks. And it becomes extremely complicated to see. But uh, if I just may wrap this quickly up, um, one of the biggest bankers in the world uh, was in Amsterdam by the name of Henry Hope. He was of Scottish descent and Dutch descent, but he had his bank in Amsterdam. And he was not only bankrolling Catherine the Great in the conquest of parts of uh, Siberia and Russia, where the Black Sea... But he was also um, financing um, the uh, purchase by Henry Knox of uh, the lands in eastern Maine. And then in 1803, in conjunction with Francis Baring, the Louisiana Purchase, which is a staggering financial deal that these guys were involved in. They were operating completely on a global scale, which is hard to imagine now how early that was. So they're bankrolling Catherine the Great. They're bankrolling all kinds of uh, issues everywhere in the world. Cochineal production, lumber, sugar, you name it, from South America. They're everywhere, but they're also heavily into financing, uh, first through uh, uh, the Revolutionary War, heavily financed, of course, which is where all the debt comes from, that has to be paid back. So the nexus between um, dispossession of Indian lands, the legalization of the dispossession through Indian title and the transfer of Indian title... And the financing of these operations through these banks that provide the capital but also want to be paid back in terms of interest payments. So they get all that money from investors in Europe, smallholders often, uh, families. They are guaranteed a payment of 3% per year. And Then the people who are taking out these loans have to pay, depending on their uh, status and their uh, security of paying back, 5%, 6%, 7% to 8%. And the differential is, of course, is where the bank is making its money. So in many ways, without uh, thinking about the capitalist penetration into Indian country, this whole story about George Washington, Henry Knox, and all these personalities becomes almost accidental because other people might have stepped in and have done the exact same thing, albeit with variation, um, to penetrate as in the vanguard of capitalism and the transformation of north america as the hegemonic power in the world that it is today uh, the united states of america
1: harold's uh, point about communal lands in europe creates a really interesting situation i'll just take a minute to point it out because i think it is it, it is important a lot of time <coughs> scholars um, my own colleagues will will cite john locke right and they'll quote John Locke about labor and land and to to basically show this is the European mindset, it's all about property. Um, Well, many of the Europeans who come here, certainly Highland Scots and Scotch-Irish, they'd never owned property, right? They were coming here in many cases because they'd been kicked off their own homelands by people who were converting those homelands into property. And when these people then get out onto the into the back country, if you like, into Indian land, mm-hmm. they don't think that they have to buy land. They don't have any money to buy land, but what they do do is what they're familiar with do, doing, and that is to use common land, right? And of course, this fits in with the ethics and the practices of many Indian peoples. So you get um, colonists, Sharing the land with Indian people, right now, that doesn't mean they're singing come by it's often very uh, contested because there's different ethics about hunting and land use, etc. etc. But it means that very often, settlers, European settlers, um, especially those from the Celtic back and borders of Britain on the frontier, are not really invested in this buying of land, they don't think that they they, they do not or cannot buy it from Indians, and they do not or cannot buy it from the government or from the land companies or from the speculators, right? So there's a really interesting incident at the end of the revolution in 1784. George Washington travels west into the Ohio country to see how his lands are doing after the war, right? And on one of his lands, he finds Uh, several families of Scotch-Irish settlers, squatters, right? And he basically says, you're on my land, you need to buy this land or pay rent. And they um, they basically give him the elevated middle digit, because they see him as just an absentee landlord and say, well, who says this is your land? We've been here. We've Cultivated the land, we've cleared the land, we've defended the land against Indians. And so we've earned the right to it and we shouldn't have to pay. And you get this situation where George Washington, right, the most powerful man in the United States, goes to court, takes these guys to court to try and get them to pay back rent. And it drags on for years and eventually they pull up stakes and move on rather than do that. And they'll do what they did there in the next place. The the government and the Eastern elites call the people squatters, right? They're trespassers. From their perspective, they're, I think, exercising legitimate and traditional rights of using land that is unused and therefore, to all intents and purposes, unoccupied. But interestingly, it means that George Washington the federal government, the eastern elites, cannot tolerate those people being there any more than Indian people, because it's not just Indians who are in the way; it's people who um, adhere to this, to these practices, these values, this way of living. Because the country has to be built on property and on the respect for property rights, so these people have to be moved. As do Indian people, and it, it uh, you know it complicates our our vision of the growth of the nation and who is dispossessed.
2: Well, to to add to the complexity now is that here in Maine, but also elsewhere in New York, for example, is that these quote squatters then to begin to imitate American Indians and begin mm. to dress as Indians. Yeah, and they do so in part by following up what Sam Adams and his man did in the Boston Tea Party, when they disguised themselves in quotation marks as Indians, but thereby playing out an icon that had nothing to do with the real American Indians. They were articulating in their costume while at the same time disguising also indigenous freedom, natural freedom in North America, as opposed to the tyranny from Europe. So the whole story of um, the Boston Tea Party begins to re- reproduce itself with these squatters who react against the Tories, which are the big landowners. So George Washington as a Revolutionary War general, Henry Knox as a G- Revolutionary War general, are now represented in this theatrical uh, resistance. They are represented as the Tories, which were the Crown, British Crown loyalists who were the big landowners before until the Revolutionary War, And now these squatters say, we are the true heirs of the American Revolution because we are the sons of liberty. We are the sons of freedom. That plays out in a very peculiar way in today's mascot issue. It's a very interesting strain that people don't realize that you go from the iconography of early maps and the American Indian as an icon for natural freedom to squatters in the dispossession of American Indians on the one hand and resisting um, rich proprietors' efforts to control that land because they have themselves have, quote, the right to that land by title, the other people are supposedly without title, that the dispossessed whites, the Scotch-Irish, whatever you may have, but they now ideologically begin to link themselves to the disappearing American Indians, which then results in a very complicated way also in the Uh, patriotic movements, such as the Improved Order of the Red Man, which gets founded uh, in the 1830s, begins then to lead to the Know Nothing Party. So this whole strain that today has become a mascot issue earlier had to do with land, and earlier before that, it had to do with um, the um, idealization of the Americas by people like the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau as the idea of the noble savage, right? The whole idea about the children of the wilderness without um, uh, the state, and without the tyranny of power, they are innately good. So these all these things begin to play out on so many levels of culture, both the political economy, right, where the land is, value, real estate, social organization, how people organize themselves in terms of acquiring or defending or expanding their their landholdings the political organization of the building of the state the structural power that we talked about uh, in another context uh, the 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 the, uh, the the organization of the state in the ju- judiciary and the legislative and executive branch right the structuring of the new state after the revolutionary war as in the united states of america but then also in the ideology Where you get uh, the poets, the um, theater plays, uh, and nowadays of course the movies. So all that stuff from an anthropological perspective where we try to look at all these levels in interplay with each other, in theoretical terms we refer to that as the infrastructure, the social structure, and the superstructure, all that together comes this dynamic, crazy ball that rolls over North America from the Atlantic shore to the Pacific shore and just crushes nation after nation after nation after nation in the way the juggernaut flattens them all out into small parcels of reservations that we now talk about.
1: Mm. And that's what Harold's talking about is is how that works is tied up with those people that we're talking about. The people who are on the... On the backcountry are often referred to by George Washington and Eastern elites as um they live like Indians, they often intermarry with Indians, and they are say so Eastern real elites often more savage than the Indians, they're worse than Indians, right? And what they what happens then is that when so-called Indian wars happen, people like George Washington and Henry Knox point the finger at these people and say, that's why, because these savage white people on the frontiers will not adhere, will not follow our Indian policies, which are just and fair, et cetera. And in a sense, what's happening is that the government is really outsourcing its Indian fighting to these people, and it's putting these people. And this is not something unique to the federal government, of the United States. This is a um, this is how empires, I think, work. You put people on the on the frontiers to act as buffers and barriers right, against potential enemies. You therefore put them in situations where there's going to be conflict. So people are not just going to uh, coexist; they're going to conflict right, and that destabilizes Indian communities and Indian countries. And Thomas Jefferson of all people actually lays this out. He basically says at one point, so this is how it's gonna work. We will make a treaty with Indians which will establish a boundary line protecting Indian land. But these gows out on the frontier will not respect that. They will breach that treaty line. Because that government is best which governs least, the federal government cannot interfere to protect Indian lands. However, once the whites have trespassed onto Indian land and the Indians go to war, then we have no choice but to intervene to put down this Indian resistance, at in which point we will then negotiate another treaty and the process will begin again. Right? So, <clears throat> the point that Harold raises, I think, it's important for us to see that there's not this sort of um, monolithic white line advancing steadily, but there are different players and different people in different positions. And different people being exploited in, in different ways, even at the same time as they are acting as um, agents of colonization and of dispossession.
0: Right. So that's it, it kind of makes me think of what we were talking about in our previous conversations about different uh, areas having different cultures, different Diverse mm-hmm. communities from different parts of Europe and whatever, and then the constitution to develop a constitution uh, that that would control all of these people. And yep. then you talked about the the Bill of Rights, how that came in. So yep. I like to.
1: Yes, as soon as the United States has secured its independence. Um, as, a, as a, an independent nation, then the question is, okay, well, what will this nation look like? Or more bluntly, I suppose, how are we gonna do this? Nobody's done this before. We know we're not gonna be a monarchy, but all of the examples of republics that we can look at are uh, either in the ancient world or they're very small. How is a republic gonna work for uh, a, a nation this size? And so the first thing they do is that the independent states confederate. They create they they unite under the Articles of Confederation, which is basically an alliance and they don't have uh, they don't have an executive, there's no president. Congress does not have the power to to impose taxes. So you have a government that cannot fund itself and almost immediately people realized, well, this isn't working so well. And that's why the states send delegates to Philadelphia to to create this more perfect union by drawing up a constitution, which again, contrary to the, the myth of American history was very contested and the ratification was in many ways by a hair's breadth, right? Not everybody wanted to do this but what the constitution does is set up a um, a three-part system of government with a Congress, that's the first, and it's first in the constitution, an executive and a judiciary. I think most people are most familiar with the amendment to the constitution, the amendments, the Bill of Rights, which were came about because many people said, wait a minute, this constitution creates a, a more robust form of government, which I guess we need, but we're a little anxious, scared by that. We don't want government to have to too much power, too much strength. So we want these rights to be guaranteed. Right? So this was, this was contested all along and it was a new form of government. And I always like the example, So the example of George Washington's own copy of the Constitution has George Washington's notes at the side, where as president, he's reading the Constitution. He's reading his job description. So, okay, what am I supposed to do? And he writes president, president after the parts of the Constitution where it says the president shall and said, I will adhere, I will abide by this Constitution. And it's it's a, a guide. Uh, it, it not only creates that more perfect union, but it's also a guide as to how that nation is going to function. And generally, um, it's 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 operated. It's succeeded pretty pretty well. It's taken a lot of battering uh, recently because if people don't agree that the constitution is something that you're going to follow, then what's what's the recourse um but this was this was huge and of course um it's all largely about giving control to the federal government so harold mentioned the indian trade of Inter- intercourse act of 1790 which of course is huge for its implications in the main indian land claims uh and everything else uh, that's right after the constitution It doesn't mean, I think, that the federal the Congress is saying we're out to protect the rights of Indians. What it means, I think, is Congress saying, we're gonna have control over Indian affairs, over trade in Indian country, and over the transfer of Indian lands, not the states. And of course, as we know, many of the states um, proceed to ignore that, uh, which gets Massachusetts and Maine in all kinds of trouble.
0: So I, I just wanna make sure that we cover a couple of topics before we end the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, uh, Harold, you started talking about the uh, the root of the word sovereignty.
2: Yeah, so uh, as uh, Colin at one point um, uh, may have mentioned, um, there was this limited sovereignty and there's another concept of course, uh, that's inherent sovereignty The um, argument has been made that uh, Native Americans didn't know about sovereignty because there was no word in the native languages that um, uh, is is properly translated as sovereignty, but simply means uh, it's a word derived from Latin and it it simply means uh, no other power acknowledgement above you. In other words, the supreme power is... The sovereign power, supreme in a sense, no recognition of another power above. The reason why in Europe um, uh, the Brexit happened recently is the uneasiness within the United Kingdom, parties within the United Kingdom, is to what degree the power within the U- European Union is concentrated in Brussels, right, as opposed to um, Westminster or in London or in Amsterdam or wherever the other places are. So what happens with the concept of sovereignty is simply uh, a reason why the United States repeatedly is not acknowledging international bodies and, uh, or retreating from it, like the International Court of Justice in The Hague that uh, prosecutes war crimes uh, internationally. Uh, the United States is repeatedly kind of pulling back from that because it doesn't want to acknowledge a, a body, a higher and more powerful reaching above uh, uh, Washington, D.C. So back to the concept of sovereignty, it's a stretchable concept. We are talking about John Marshall, the chief justice, when he is asked to rule in the case of the Cherokee versus the, um, the, the state of Georgia. Um, in terms of to what degree does the state of Georgia have has a right to prosecute criminals in Cherokee country? And the argument then becomes, in essence, that it doesn't, but it becomes very obscure how he, John Marshall, how John Marshall, as the Chief Justice um, of the United States, how he's defining uh, the Cherokee Nation as an entity within the United States, but outside of Georgia. And the term that is then used is a domestic dependent nation. And that, in essence, means that you have an inherent sovereignty, that means, as Colin earlier was referring to, that the limits your capacity to make um, uh, to establish foreign relations, for example, with Japan, or sell uh, to Japan a tract of land if Japan wants to have a nice um, you know piece of land in the United States, and then the Cherokee would say, "Well, we just sold it to Japan. That's our right." But that's circumscribed as not possible. So what you now get is that with that. Uh, the United States expanding its sphere of power from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast, and then waltzing over Indian country, it creates what was first outside of the Republic of the United States, is then coming within the United States um, Republic. And they create these pockets called reservations, where you have a internal sovereignty recognition, meaning they have the right to govern themselves within the bounds of the reservation, but they, for certain purposes, fall under the overarching uh, structure of the United States of America as a republic. And you see the perpetually contested as most recently in in, in Oklahoma uh, with respect to, for example, taxation or uh, who can tax where, or in the case of Maine, with uh, the casinos. To what degree can you have Mm. a casino off Indian Island, but then go toward the New Hampshire border, right? What right does the Penobscot nation have to establish a casino? And what right does, let's say the state of Maine have in terms of contesting that right? So that's why these cases are in the courts, have been in the courts, and will forever be in the courts. The courts will always be involved in that contestation of power, whereby one party tries to restrain and the other one party tries to um, expand or simply negotiate and come to a solution. Um, so it's a state formation, nation formation is an unfinished bus- business by definition. It will never be uh, uh, stopping. Lawyers will always be in employment. Historians in the future will always have a job because we always are trying to figure out how do we get here in this mess and how do we get out. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. That's just a fascinating. Um, prospect for Collins uh, students uh, at Dartmouth. They will have a job if they're smart uh, and lucky Um, because historians will always be needed for guidance about how did we get there? How was it solved the last time? What status do we attach in terms of credibility to a ruling by uh, Chief Justice John Marshall? Why do we care? Why are these words so important? So just to um, finish my thought on this, we talked uh, earlier about wampum belts as um, and wampum beads as having an animated power. Wampum beads are not inanimate, but animate. Uh, treaties, likewise, are animate in the sense that they can be resuscitated, and they are resuscitated, uh, put back life into uh, through people picking up a wampum belt and say, this means something, and I hereby declare this womba belt or this treaty not obsolete, or I de- declare it obsolete. I won't have it reformulated. So these are living documents, not dead texts. And I think that the important thing for me as an anthropologist dealing with history, I studied those histories, but I'm also trying to figure out to what degree it, it, there are pieces of dormancy and, and, and life, just like live DNA in old bones of Sometimes 40, 60000 year old bones, we discovered this live DNA. Likewise, in old t- texts, old documents, there's live DNA on another level that can be resuscitated and brought back to life just like anything else. And that makes it so fascinating. Uh, history is so fascinating if you understand it in terms of its re- ongoing significance in terms of shaping the present and the future. Great. Colin? Couple
1: the treaties in the history of this country. It it strikes me that treaties are foundational documents, and we've got certain foundational documents. We've got the Declaration of Independence, right? Establishes the independence of the United States. You've got the Constitution, which establishes the structure of government of the United States, and those two doc foundational documents are revered. They have almost a, a you know they're almost held as, as sacred. And then you have the body of Indian treaties, which establishes the land base of the United States, and those have not been revered. In fact, they've often just been dismissed. And I think many many Americans wouldn't even think that they they count. But it, it always seems to me that that's that's an essential part of the piece. Um, and and talking of trios, uh, the term that the phrase that Harold um, quoted from John Marshall domestic dependent nations right i mean there's three words but with countless contradictions and ambiguities in it how can you can you be domestic dependent nations don't don't doesn't that negate it and it raises that question well what is is sovereignty actually absolute power, as many people think it is. Well, no, not necessarily. There's all kinds of negotiated sovereignties and shared sovereignties uh, in Europe and um, in the United States or, you know, example I always think of is that in, in, in England, we, we often call the queen, the sovereign, right? Well, if there's somebody who doesn't have absolute power, they have it, right? Um, so it's uh, some, of these, um, some of these words that we use um are much more fluid and flexible i think than sometimes we think they are
0: okay um i did i wanted to get one more thing in and we only got like less than 2 minutes okay but harold you intrigued me when you said something about uh white white supremacy the 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 founding fathers were kind of like white supremacists because they're white they made these this constitution in in their favor. And so it's kind of like we're sort of gone a full circle to, but now we're talking about uh, the issues with white supremacists today.
2: Yeah. So uh, Colin had mentioned um, at one point that uh, the founding fathers dropped the ball on two things. And one was uh, African-American slavery. And the other one was native Americans with respect to, Um, uh, establishing a niche, if you will, in the framework of that nation building. And then I mentioned, uh, I said, and there were two other elements and one was women, right, who were also left out as well well as uh, class, the the working class, the dispossessed, uh, or the people who have never had anything, they have nothings, um, that they were also not represented. So what you see there is a body of white males, right, of property, Uh, who have an ideology, a frame of thinking about the world and their own place and destiny in it that doesn't leave space for um, anyone else but white males of property. That becomes American history. And so therefore we have today Native American Mm -hmm. history, African history, women's history, labor history, and then we have American history. And you wonder, why do we have no... Why is American history in a way equal historically to that kind of history that excludes people also from the political process itself? And uh, the term white male supremacy is a very charged one. I'm very aware of it, uh, but it does allow us uh, to look more critically back to uh, the past and realize there were in the structures of power and power making and power defending, there were inherent inequalities asymmetrical relations of power right from the beginning were built in to the fabric of the American nation.
0: Okay, th- uh, thank you. I, we, we, we ran out of time. I know we've had lots and lots of things we could have said, and uh, but I really want to thank you uh, both for, uh, for agreeing to be on the show. Uh, and uh, I want to thank our audience. So thank you for uh, joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, and you've been listening to Web & Aki Windows, and we've been talking about uh, sovereignty. And uh, again, I wanna thank professors Colin Colloway and Harold Prince for being on the show. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineer for our show is John Mann. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.